Hello and welcome back to the Trust Your Gut podcast. So today I have a bit of a stuffed up nose, so I might sound a little funky. Apologies for that, but I'm going to go ahead and record this podcast episode anyways because I really want to. So before I get into today's episode, I just want to make two announcements on things that are up and coming. So the first thing is that I am going to be opening up the Gut Brain Healing Toolkit group program in the next few months. Please stay tuned for an official opening date. I am in the process of fine-tuning it, reorganizing it. I've come up with a lot of different ideas of how I want it to be presented with a couple different levels of access. So all of this information is not on the website page for the program yet, but if you've been interested or you are interested in joining the program and having that support for working with your nervous system to heal your IBS or your other gut brain symptoms, then I encourage you to go down to the show notes and get on the wait list because you'll be the first to know when doors are open and to know when all the new features and the ways that this program is going to be structured are announced. And those on the wait list will, of course, be first to be offered a spot and get a special discount. So go sign up for that wait list. The other announcement is I'm currently working on a masterclass. It is going to be for the outdoor athlete and their gut health. So if you are an outdoor athlete or you do a lot of outdoor activities and you have gut health issues or you notice that those outdoor pursuits make you have symptoms in your gut health, this is going to be for you. This is a masterclass to help you understand why that's happening and what you can do to prevent those symptoms from happening and to actually support your gut health best while you still go out and do the athletic pursuits you wanna do, whether that's for your own enjoyment or maybe even for your work. And of course, a big part of that is going to be looking at the nervous system and its involvement and the gut brain and its involvement in our athletic pursuits. So if that sounds like something you're interested in or you need, please stay tuned as well for an announcement coming on the podcast. It will also be coming on social media and on the email list. So if you're not on my email list already... You can always email me at hello at trustyourguthelp.com or you can go down and take my free quiz if you haven't already and that will get you on the email list as well. So those are my announcements and I am going to be doing a different kind of episode today. It's a bit of an experiment, okay? (laughs) So I've felt inspired to go a little bit more deeply into stories around my travels So there was this period of time, it was about five or six years from the age of 23 up until 29, that I was traveling pretty much full time. And I have all these journals from those travels, which are full of this evolution from my deep struggles with my 
body um, and my health and my nervous system and also just like understanding you know my role in the world and my spirituality and I feel like in these journals and in these stories of my travels are really beautiful nuggets of wisdom and really clear examples of that struggle and you know everybody's journey through their own health and healing looks different and I think these years are a really prime time that I was exploring that and then there was kind of this time after once I came back and settled home when I was 29 that it got even tougher and it got even deeper um and that's been more present in the content I've been sharing as of late because that's been the you know past four years but maybe this will evolve into focusing on you know what was also so deep and challenging about the last four years after the five or six years of travel so why this is a bit experimental is because well you know these travels started a decade ago so my memory is only holding on to so much I have the journal in front of me. I don't feel like I have the time and capacity to necessarily go through each journal and read it word for word. So what I'm going to do is just tell the stories from each country um, or each kind of chunk of countries that makes sense from what I do remember and what was super potent and then kind of fill in things from the journal that's in front of me. So you might hear the papers flipping around in the background. I'll likely just kind of pause and read and bring those things in as I go. But again, a little bit experimental, but you know, I want to have fun with this and I love stories. So I want to do something a little bit different than just educating on different topics around gut health and nervous system health and trauma. So we are going to start with the beginning, the very beginning of my travels, and that might be all that's in this episode. Again, I don't know exactly where we're going to get to. Um, and what I started with, so this was just after I graduated college, I was 23. If you listen to the very first episode, you know a bit of this story. But uh, my father passed away in July. It actually was the 10th anniversary of his death four days ago. It was July 27th, 2013. So that was the summer before my last quarter at university. And I had always wanted to travel. I had had a taste of travel when I was a teenager I went with Drama Club to London when I was 15. And then I went on a Europe backpacking trip when I was 19 for two months, which was just crazy. (laughs) So it was always something that I really desired to do. And I remembered when I got hired uh, for leading young girls and mentoring them in this environmental education, outdoor education program, I told the woman who hired me, who now is one of my best friends, that I really wanted to work here, 
but I was planning to travel after college. I didn't have the money to do that, but I was going to make it happen however I could. I just trusted that. And I think she told me that she was kind of like, yeah, okay, well, I really wanted to hire you, and I kind of figured, like, you probably wouldn't have the money right away, so you'd actually end up staying longer. Well, what then happened, right, is my father passed away, and so I inherited money. At first, it was just um, a, a smaller amount from some of his belongings and stuff, but it was enough for me to travel. So once I graduated, I remember I did uh, my senior project, which I created a one-woman show. Um, it was all about exploring the human nature connection, which was my focus um, for my major. I was exploring how do I feel my wild self, not just in wild places, but in my everyday life, like connecting to that more wild, you know, animal part of me, you know, the part that's connected to nature. And so this one woman show was made up of um, taking pieces from my journals that I turned into monologues and weaving it with Mary Oliver poetry and just kind of exploring all these different scenes. Um, still to this day, one of the coolest things I've done, and sadly it did not get recorded because there was an issue with the camera, but I have the script, I have the memories. <laughs> um, at the end of the performance, like it was all my friends and family there and the faculty I had worked with, it was like really the most in incredible feeling to have all these people in the room. And I was getting questions about what are you going to do? Like, what are you doing now that you're graduating? And I was like, my goal is to not pay rent <laughs> for the next year which I ended up not paying rent for the next, I guess it was five or six years because that became the beginning of my travels. And the first place I decided to go overseas was Thailand because I had a friend who was gonna be there and I always wanted to go to Thailand, but Nepal was calling to me very intensely. So I went to Thailand and then to Nepal and then after that, India. So this, episode is definitely going to be very focused on Nepal and likely India and it might just be left there and we'll um, pick it up in the next episode but we'll see. So um, the very first first thing I did was travel down to Joshua Tree and Red Rocks which is outside of Las Vegas, Nevada with two of my best girlfriends. Uh, one of them had also just graduated and we had just been starting to learn how to rock climb on our own and, and lead routes by ourselves. And it was this really empowering trip of, we don't need to go with the guys. Like, you know, some of them had learned from climbing with boyfriends and I feel like I had learned from climbing with, I guess, yeah, love interests too, um, or, you know, romantic connections or, you know, the guys at the outdoor center. And so it was this really empowering thing for us to go and, you know, climb within our grade and our mean, but begin to push it and feel like we could do it ourselves. And we had this really amazing time down in the desert climbing. And that set me off on my journey to Thailand. I don't have a lot to share from this first Thailand trip. A lot of it felt like it was just about woo, I'm in Thailand, let's like see everything and kind of party a bit and, and whatnot. Um, and I was like connecting with friends there from college and meeting a lot of other travelers and 
and whatnot, riding motorbikes and eating really good food and going to the markets and going snorkeling and accidentally getting bit by a dog on the street. And of course, there's a ton of love stories within these many years of travel, and I'm not going to tell all of them because that's not what this is about, although there's an immense amount of learning in love stories, and it's not separate from everything I was discovering about myself and my healing, but we just don't need to get into it so deeply. The, the people who are important to talk about I will talk about, I'm not going to name names. Again, this is not a podcast on relationships, but relationships are a huge part of our health and healing. So um, there was some stuff going on there (laughs) and there was a big, um, you know, healing going on for me in my heart. Not only, you know, remember my dad had just passed away, not even, you know, just months ago. So here I am, you know, that is something that was obviously really present through this first year and will come up more specifically. But I had also um, connected with someone who I had had feelings for for a couple years. And we came together right around the time my dad passed. And we were just in different places. Him coming out of a really long relationship and me being having been single for a while and ultimately that led to some heartache because we wanted different things and some of the ways wanting different things was handled was not with a lot of clarity um, and consideration and it was a very hurtful thing so I, I also left on this journey processing that within my heart which kind of caused me to be a little bit more closed up um, towards connecting with people so just to kind of you know put out that those things were present with me, especially in this first year of my travel, really navigating um, these two heartaches, these two different heartaches around men, you know, the father wound and and also this masculine wound, which um, has been a theme throughout my life um, and that I've maybe talked about a bit on the podcast, but um, there's a very deep father wound that, I have, but I've realized it runs throughout my family. So not only do I have a father wound and, you know, my sister too, given just uh, what we experienced with our own father, but I know that my father also had a father wound and my mother has a father wound and both my grandmothers have father wounds and likely my grandfathers. And so you can see how deep this wound runs throughout the family and that that intergenerational trauma is passed forward. So then I started to experience this wound playing out in relationships with men in my adult life. And the wound was also that, you know, I wasn't chosen. Um, I was left for someone else. And in ways, you know, I didn't feel maybe chosen or fully loved by my father, given, you know, his addiction and his inability to be fully in presence and love. And so... um, This is kind of the beginning of uh, really starting to understand that wound as well. And and this is something that is a a deep part of my healing um, that I'm still navigating a lot today. And it's not separate from my gut health. 
or my mental health or the way that my nervous system is because that's a huge part of my childhood is likely yearning for that love from my father and sadness and lack of safety around that, right? So there was the beginning of that, um, really understanding that. So um, from Thailand, I made it up to Nepal and I fell in love with Nepal right away uh, with the, the crazy busyness of Kathmandu, but all the shops with the yak wool hats and scarfs and textiles and incense and Tibetan prayer flags and singing bowls and just everything. It was just unlike any place I've ever been in my life um, and found the, the Nepalese people to be just so kind and welcoming. And of course, Kathmandu is just this hot spot of tourists and there was like unique music every night in different cafes and places and um, it just was a really cool environment to be a part of. And I set off to do my first trek, which was the Annapurna Circuit. And I started to meet a lot of different people along the way, which then created a, a little group. And unfortunately, one of the days our group went past the village we were supposed to stop in and sleep. We just skipped it which meant we went up too high too fast. So it's very high elevation. You have to be very mindful about how much elevation you gain in a day or you might get altitude sickness. So, you know, we felt fine and we passed it. So we just went to the next village, no big deal. But throughout the night, I started to have a lot of trouble sleeping and other people I heard had trouble sleeping and there was some coughing starting and then we were going to go over the pass that day. And I remember starting out feeling all right, just, you know, lack of sleep, but shortly it was like kind of short of breath and feeling a little lightheaded and my lips turned blue. But, you know, I was able to make it up over the pass and back down and, you know, recognize that, okay, we need to be smarter about this unfortunately that night upon arrival in the village where everyone was celebrating and being excited about getting over the pass you know this high point I started to not feel so well that night and the next morning I was feeling absolutely horrible I think I started trekking and then I could not keep walking and so I figured the best thing to do was try to catch a bus because now we were at the point where there was a road and get to the next village where all the group was walking and just stay there and, you know, try to meet them. But this bus ride felt like I had knives stabbing me in the stomach each bump that the bus went over, which, of course, this was not a paved road and it was full of potholes. So just stab, 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 just immense stomach pain until I had to just throw up out the window as the bus is moving. Just absolutely horrible. I've never experienced a stomach bug like that. So I ended up being in bed all the next day, so sick, until I finally dug down and took some antibiotics that I had gotten prescribed to me before traveling there, which was a very smart idea. 
So then the antibiotics made me feel better. I was able to continue on, go to the hot springs. There's this place that's really popular for sunrise that you hike up to. Now, this is um, something I've learned a couple times, but you're supposed to finish your round of antibiotics, right? Well, I was like, well, I'm feeling better. I've taken the antibiotics a couple days, whatever. It's fine. I didn't take them that morning. Now, after that sunrise hike, we were supposed to hike out all the way to catch the bus. And I started hiking and I started to feel horrible. My stomach started to be cramped in pain. I was feeling nauseous. And uh, there was a couple times I had to go off the side of the trail up to some house, knock, ask them if they had a toilet I could use, which hopefully they understood me, and then go out to the toilet, which was a hole in the ground that I just had to pop a squat over and have, you know, explosive diarrhea. Luckily, I had some strong friends in the group that carried my backpack as I just hobbled down this hill until we finally made it back to the bus. I might have popped another antibiotic then and then committed to finishing my antibiotics as we rolled into the town of Pokhara, which is kind of like this adventure capital. There's paragliding and all the different things going on. Again, a ton of tourists who are out partying until curfew happens at 12 or something. So this would begin (laughs) the gut bug saga of this first year. So before I went on this trip, I had actually been, and I think a big part of this was, you know, after, before my dad's death, like that summer before, I will say I was part of this um, spring quarter outdoor environmental ed group intensive that was so much fun. We were hanging out all the time and we were p- partying probably a little too much. And I definitely drank too much in college. So I was drinking a lot and just probably not sleeping enough, not taking care of my body enough. And so I wasn't feeling very good in my gut health leading up to the time that my dad passed. And then of course, after he passed, like that did not help my gut health at all or just how I felt in my body. And so when I came back into that last quarter of school, I got really focused on taking care of myself and eating well and exercising And um, I was feeling a lot better. I was feeling amazing. I actually was like maybe the strongest I'd been in a long time too physically. And my gut health was doing pretty well. Like I wasn't even bloated. So coming into Asia and starting to get the stomach bugs kind of begin to throw everything off a little bit. So that was the beginning of the stomach bug saga. Now, while I was in Pokhara for a couple days, I decided to explore craniosacral therapy. It's really the one and only session I've ever done, but this was also the beginning of exploring a lot of different healing arts. Well, I guess technically back in Thailand, I started to explore healing arts there. Massage has been something I've always gotten done because it's like the best feeling in the world, right? And Thai massage is amazing in Thailand because, well, at least at that point, it's definitely very different today. But back in 2013, or maybe it was 2014 at that point, it was like $5 for an hour. So I definitely was getting a lot of Thai massage. But I also went and did a Reiki session for my first time. Probably some other things that I don't remember either. 
But in Pokhara, I got craniosacral therapy done. And it brought up, I, I don't remember exactly, but at least according to my journal, it brought up the question of why I was holding so much tension in my guts. What have I been protecting myself from? What have I been armoring for? So during that session, I found a lot of pain and emotion um, from that place and I felt it link back to my childhood. So again, this is 10 years ago and I had been beginning to explore some of this when I was in college and starting to explore somatic psychotherapy. I started to link my gut issues to my anxiety at that point, starting to understand the gut-brain connection, the mind-body connection, and um, begin to link my gut issues to depression that I had experienced. But um, I was this was the very beginning stages of me starting to link my own symptoms to my childhood or to intergenerationally. And again, I'm just discovering this now as I'm going back through these journals. I don't I didn't remember that this was something I started to uncover in a craniosacral therapy in Pokhara, Nepal. This is why this is kind of fun because you're uncovering this with me. But this is where it's like if you go back and you look at things that you've written, from different times, you'll start to see the the cyclical nature of it all. The things that have been part of your journey for a long time that were planted way back then, 10 years ago or longer, that you've been deepening and starting to really embody. And in a way, you can see that it takes time. So this is just my little reminder to you that a lot of this takes time to really fully start embodying and embracing and bringing into your life so when you start to feel that you're you know not good enough that you're not healing fast enough that you're not over that trigger that your symptoms aren't gone just remember that it takes time it took a lot of time for me to get to the place I'm at now so this was when I first started to just really start going well wow I'm feeling a lot of this tension there what am I protecting myself from like what you know, tension in our body serves a purpose, right? To like protect us. So I was questioning that. And that's when I started to connect back to the childhood. Um, and my parents kept coming to mind. And this feeling that I had taken on so much of their suffering. And that is something I've continued to um, connect with and unfold over these last years through plant medicine and different therapeutic models and, and healing practices. So I was first realizing how many traumatic situations I experienced with them as a child that I never had anyone to talk to about it. I had no outlet for discharge and I felt scared and unsafe and I used this tension as an armor. My body held on to that feeling of being unsafe and being scared and used that as an armor. So even up until that point 10 years ago, um, I 
had never processed some of those things with anybody that that's a different story today but at that point I hadn't talked about or processed some of the things that I had witnessed or experienced as a kid and so I I write here in my journal I think that's going to be an important step in my healing I just have to laugh at that (laughs) oh man if if 10 years ago we knew what would be happening today (laughs) how that's like the backbone of the work I do with clients. Oh, that's fun. Um, so, you know, I was also acknowledging that some of these things were so suppressed that I couldn't remember them. Right. Um, and then there were some things I remembered vividly, like certain, certain experiences that I won't go into detail about here in this podcast, but I'm always an open book. If you're a client of mine or in the program to talk more details. Um, so I was, um, yeah, kind of just starting to uncover that during this particular session. I'm, I even wrote here about my OCD, which is something I've come to understand more deeply, but it's cool that I was acknowledging it then. And I think the big theme here was just like holding it in right? Like I wasn't digesting the things that were going on. Like there, there was no one to go and talk to. Like, who do you go and talk to when you're a little kid? You know, when like things are going on that are kind of scary and you don't really know, like, I know I talked to my mom a little bit about some of those things, but you know, she was also a part of it. So it was like, who do you go and talk to? We don't, really necessarily have great like mentorship for young kids or you know not all kids are going to a therapist or have you know ways that they've been taught to like be able to move through their emotions or their fears or things going on so I was holding it in and if you think about like holding in things like I was chronically constipated for a lot of my life so I was like holding in and like holding all of that emotion and fear inside my body. So it makes so much sense that the constipation was happening. Like I was not digesting my emotions and so they were all staying inside. And that was really hard being a highly sensitive, empathetic, very emotional being, okay? (laughs) Like I was probably processing them somewhat and crying. I, I mean, I know I was crying, but like, you know, just crying actually doesn't necessarily process your emotions fully, right? That that can be a big release, but sometimes we need to also be connecting to the context of the situation and connecting to where that is in our body and allowing that to, you know, present through our body in whatever way it might want to. That could be an emotion and that might be relieved from crying. But sometimes if we're just crying out of overwhelm or fear and we're not really using it as a way to process, it's just a way to like release, we may not feel like we actually are processing what's going on. So after my time there, I went off to do the three passes trek. This is a month-long trek in the Kumbu region of the Himalaya. This is the same region that Mount Everest is, so you get to go up to Everest Base Camp as part of this big circuit. 
but you're going over three high passes all over 5,000 meters. And we were able to go up three small peaks along the way, which are also all over 5,000 meters and um, go up to Everest Base Camp as a little sidetrack. And so I started off and I write about, you know, really hiking and feeling into a lot of those things that came up in the craniosacral therapy, but also wanting to make sure I was really present with this journey and not getting too deep into my past traumas. And we started um, out with a really beautiful experience staying with a family who um, taught us how to cook dal bot, just a very traditional Nepalese dish with um, rice and mung beans and different kind of curried vegetables. Um, and this family had this little young girl who was just so curious in us and so playful. And there was a baby goat and a puppy. <laughs> and I just write about being in that environment. And um, again, just was always moved by the Nepalese people and how welcoming and, and loving and giving they were, even if they didn't have very much to give. And a beautiful part of hiking in the Himalaya is that you're not typically camping in your own tent. You are going from village to village and you're staying in someone's guest house. And so you're typically paying to stay and sleep in a bed there in a room and then you buy food. And, and typically they make the most money off of selling you food. There were times that um, we didn't even pay for a place to stay. We just committed to buying, you know, dinner and breakfast there and maybe some beverages and so typically every night was eating dal bot rice and lentils which at that time for my gut i was not used to eating that much rice or that much um lentils so that much like fiber and carbohydrates it was uh, it was a lot for my body so i'd already been through one stomach bug and my microbiome was a little bit off and now i'm just eating really heavy amounts of of rice and carbs and so again, we're starting to like feel, you know, a little off, but we're burning a lot of fuel. I also pretty much ate Snickers bars, peanut butter, <laughs> yak cheese, maybe some dried yak meat, whatever kind of bars I could find um, throughout the day. And then morning would be some sort of like potato egg thing um with like instant coffee and then night was doll bot and sometimes it was two helpings of doll bot because they would just keep refilling your doll bot so just feel like mentioning that now as it comes up um and we begin this journey and um there's something i write um that i think was a big theme i mean it's been a big theme throughout my life of slowing down um if you're familiar with the podcast, I talk about, you know, being in a flight response a lot of my life. That go, 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 do, 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 busy, 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 like filling my time with things, like moving fast. And um, that was something that, you know, at that point I was very, very used to doing. So um, I write how... I found myself feeling very peaceful 
when I slowed down walking behind the yaks. So there's yaks and porters who are also sharing these trails. We were carrying all our own stuff. We didn't hire porters. Um, but there will be groups of people who will hire porters to um, take all of their stuff that they need and all the food and equipment um, up to the villages uh, on yaks and sometimes the porters are carrying these own things on their heads and their backs as well so sometimes we would get stuck in these long lines on like narrow parts of the trail behind all the yaks and the porters so that's what I'm referring to here I realized how resistant I felt to rushing and how that feeling of trying to rush gave me anxiety and aided in the grumpiness I was feeling I rush around all the time back home in my everyday life, or at least I did. And so I was often filled with anxiety and stress trying to do too much, to fit too much in, to accomplish. Why should I rush while I'm here? When I hike so fast, it does not feel good on my body. It's a wonderful workout, but I don't see that much around me. I don't take in the sound, smells, or even touch anything. What is all the rush for? When I got stuck behind the yaks, I felt as though I was getting the experience I was supposed to. This is a part of everyday life here. Yaks on the trail carrying supplies and the hoarders that are following them yelling out commands. This part of everyday life exists partly because of the trekkers and the climbers. This is the pace of life out here. But so is the pace of the line of the porters now behind me hurrying to get in front of these giant creatures. I'll keep my spot in the back for now. It's teaching me more about patience, something I'm always needing to work on. So this is definitely a theme throughout my life of learning how to slow down. I then write, this morning I woke to watch the sunrise hit the giant peaks around me with the colors rising up the glaciated walls. The sun warmed my skin and the frozen ground below. I watched the bubbles rise up and make beautiful, intricate patterns in the ice. Behind me were four yaks lying in a field, waiting for the sun to melt the snow off their backs. Two red-beaked crows flew in and out of a nearby nest to the top of the roof, calling out to others while cleaning their feathers. Ponies ran around behind me, playing games in the morning. What a spectacular morning and way to wake up, start the day, just quietly watching the world around me wake with the sun. So, you know, despite these, you know, well-painted moments of slowness and peacefulness, you know, this trek was definitely a very physically demanding thing. I don't think there was many rest days that we had where it was truly just resting. There were a couple rest days where we didn't move on to the next village, but went for a day trip to go up one of the peaks along the way. Um, And this is, you know, just something that I do. Um, I... Um, I guess I would consider myself a mountain athlete and I love doing this. Um, but it was definitely, uh, a lot of movement and, um, challenge physically, uh, which brings about its own processing. So one of the things that happened though, is on one of those quote rest days, uh, we went up this side trip up to this a little peak or something. I honestly don't remember what we were going for because we were just walking. We were not on a trail. We were just walking up this steep, steep hillside through this like grass and tussock and and different plants. 
And the two guys I was with, um, I had met them on the three passes trek. They were from the U.S. as well. Um, You know, very outdoorsy guys, young, just like we're just sending it up this hill. And I remember my body was like, don't do that. Don't do that. Like, I also had like a lot of emotion that morning for some reason. I think I was, um, I got to some point where I was um, singing a song that I always sing to connect with my dad with. And, you know, this was in still within the first year of his passing. And so a lot of grief came over me. And so my body was just telling me to slow down. So I took it very, very slowly, whereas these guys went up really quickly up the hill. And so remember, you're going, you're, you're at very high elevations already. You know, a lot of the trek was around 4,000 meters or 3,000 meters. And you're going up. They just went up too fast. And so the next day, as we were actually making our way over the pass, they started to cough a lot. And we got to the village, and this was now going to be the point where we went up to Everest Base Camp. And that night, they were up all night coughing, and one of the altitude sicknesses you can get is hape, and that's where you start to have um, pulmonary edema, so issues with your lungs, and it can be deadly. And so in the morning when they still weren't feeling better, just a lot of coughing, um, just feeling really sick and unwell, they needed to descend and go lower in elevation. That's the only way to feel better. And I was fine because I didn't push it that day. My body, I listened to my body, um, which I haven't always done. (laughs) So they descended and I wanted to go up to Everest Base Camp. So I continued up Um, And I just happened to run into someone we had met earlier in the trek, and he was trekking with two people. One was a person from Seattle, and the other was this Australian guy. And I had met this group earlier in the trek, and then we didn't see them again until this moment. And so the three of us went to Everest Base Camp, and because this Seattle guy had a connection with a Seattle guiding company there, we went up to that um, the tents of this company, they gave us, they opened this like treasure chest full of all these American like candies and snack bars, which is just like when you're out there trekking and you need to stock up on your snacks for the day, there's not much choice beyond like Snickers and they're maybe just candy. So this was like a treasure chest. And, um, the next day I went up on a peak called Kalapatar it's this beautiful view of Mount Everest and the surrounding peaks. And it was this beautiful day and I was sitting up there and I remember noticing all these helicopters flying in and out. And I was like, wow, like that's a lot of helicopters. They must be like taking advantage of the really good weather window and bringing in supplies, what whatever it may be. And I went back down to, um, you know, along the Everest base camp trek, there's bigger lodges with a lot more amenities than a lot of the places we were staying. So I went to this lodge and there was Wi-Fi there and I got on so I could get connected with the the guys I'd been trekking with to find out how they were doing. And as I got on, all these messages start coming through like, are you okay? Were you in that avalanche on Everest? You know, of course, people don't really understand. I'm not actually up on Mount Everest. Um, I was like, what's going on? And so the rest of the world had learned before me about this um, avalanche that had happened in the Kumbu Icefall, which is 
when you leave Everest Base Camp, this is going to be the first area that you go through. And it's really the deadliest area. It's just this maze of crevasses and seracs um, that you need to go through. And, you know, the Sherpas are the ones who are putting up the ladders and fixing the lines. And they're the ones who go through this icefall multiple times during a trip to bring all the participants' supplies up to the other base camps. And so I had found out that there was the biggest, most deadliest avalanche that happened in the icefall. It must have been really early that morning or sometime in the night, and it ended up burying 16 Sherpas, and it killed 14. And apologies, because this is 10 years ago, and I don't remember the final stats. This is just what I have written in my journal. Um, And this was a big deal. This was the deadliest um, event on Everest to have happened, I think still to this day. Um, And it had only killed Sherpas, you know, none of the, you know, Western um, clients. And so for the first time in the history of climbing Everest, many of the Sherpas said they were not going to climb the mountain for the rest of the season they wanted to honor the mountain and they said she did not want us to climb her this year and so um, as I began my journey continuing on the three pass circuit and coming out of this main Everest base camp highway I began to meet a lot of Sherpas who had quit and they demanded from the government um, pay for the loss of a lot of the other Sherpas and to support their families and to just support Sherpas better in this whole industry. Um, and that was um, pretty incredible to see, although I don't know if Sherpas are still getting the pay and the acknowledgement and the support that they deserve, but um, that was definitely a, a big moment for Sherpas in, in the Everest history. And um, so I continued on to kind of one of the last main villages and there I would reunite with the guys I had been trekking with meeting a lot of other wonderful people along the way and then having one of just the best nights in my memory of travel of being in a guest house where a bunch of Sherpas (laughs) were at this point and other guides um, who were just bringing out the local spirits and singing lots of songs and teaching us Nepalese songs and dances. And it was um, just a really beautiful sense of community. And so that trek wrapped up and this was entering into traveling solo for the first time in my entire life. So up until this point, I had, you know, connected with friends from home in Thailand and then started my time in Nepal with a friend from home who started the first trek with me. And then, you know, I met these American guys I went on the trek with and now everyone was going separate ways. And I knew I wanted to stay in Nepal and I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I had met someone on the three passes trek who had been staying in a village teaching English And I had felt so moved by my experience in Nepal that I wanted to give back in some way and do something 
where I wasn't just coming as a tourist and kind of consuming, (laughs) you know, like consuming the culture and the nature and everything there. I wanted to also give back in some way. So, um, I believe it was at this point that I went up to a village called Jijibi. I'm not sure the pronunciation, um, through that connection, um, of the guy I had met who had been teaching English. I went and stayed with the same family that he was connected with this long, bumpy, crazy bus ride out of Kathmandu up to this village. And now at this point I had had a stomach bug again because that's what happens. So now we're on round two of stomach bug. I don't think I took antibiotics for this one. Maybe I did. I just remember having that after I came back from the trek, trying to enjoy like some nice luxuries in Kathmandu and being sick and then going up to this village and still being sick coming off of that again, you know, a a hole in the ground toilet outside to be sick in was a little tough. But this was a really challenging and beautiful experience. Uh, It was challenging because I was the only foreigner in the village. So of course I got a lot of attention and that was a bit uncomfortable for me. I wasn't used to that. And the only people in the family I could speak English with were the children Um, really at all throughout the village. The children spoke really good English, but the the grandma and grandpa who lived in the home, the parents, um, other adults in the village, it was really difficult to communicate. And again, this was my first time. Now I'm really used to that, but at that point, that was my first time trying to communicate. But I learned different ways of communicating, right? Laughing and eye contact and the few Nepalese words that I knew. Um, and you know, I was staying in this home where both the grandmother and grandpa and then the two children and then the mom and dad were also living. The dad was away. Um, and they were so kind to put me up in the guest room and they all slept in one room together. The kitchen and where we ate, we would just sit on a dirt floor and typically breakfast was fresh buffalo milk that they would milk from their buffalo with puffed rice kind of like a cereal and maybe some chai tea also with the buffalo milk and then we might have a snack later after school of boiled potatoes and then lunch would be dal bot and then dinner would be another version of dal bot so maybe something a little bit different um And again, my body was not so used to all of the starch and carbohydrates. So that with the stomach bug, again, this was kind of beginning some of my GI issues starting up again. Um, I went to the school. It was so much fun. (laughs) I tried to create all this curriculum and things I wanted to teach kids. But then, you know, the principal was pretty much just like, just let them find out about you. And so they just want to know everything about the U.S. and me and all this stuff. And I brought in my guitar and I would teach them 
songs in English, and then they would teach me Nepalese songs and dances, and it was really a beautiful exchange. I, and they loved having me there, and it was it was really sweet. Um, just one of one of my core memories for sure. Um, the mother got me um, a Nepalese gown made. We went to the tailor in town and got everything cut out and made. And then the real honor was um, the last night that I was there. Um, They wanted to create a special meal for me, so they decided they were going to slaughter one of the goats. Um, It was getting ready to be slaughtered anyways. But to get it slaughtered, it needed to be taken to Um, a temple and the temple was in the next village over so Amma the grandmother who was in her 80s but every day still um, walked to the next village carrying rice on her back I mean the the home that we stayed in it you come in on this one road that goes through the town where kind of all the little shops are and um, the school and then we have to walk up this hill through all these terraced like rice fields and it's kind of a trek up the hill to get to the house. And so she took the goat, or maybe grandfather did, or they, they both helped to the next village to be slaughtered at this temple. And then they brought it back and they cooked me um, a goat curry to go with the doll bot, which is um, just was such an honor. So as I wrapped up my time there, I headed back to Kathmandu. Um, I think I had just a couple days there before I was set to fly off to Greece, which was a random in between two week trip to Greece to go climbing before returning to India, um, which I'm probably just going to leave out of the story for now, as it has a lot to do with just that love thread. Um, But yeah, in my time in Kathmandu, uh, I just went to take in some of the last things I hadn't seen yet. Uh, so this was visiting the place where they cremate bodies out in the open. And I did this with um, the Australian guy I had mentioned meeting on the Three Passes trek. And we were making our way back from that and we heard all this music going on and all these people dressed up really beautiful in these extravagant saris and and different outfits and we're like whoa what's going on like there was like a marching band going through on the street so we just found our way walking over there and suddenly we were being like drawn into the middle of the circle of all these people dancing and drinking and then suddenly like shuffled into this building and there was this Indian wedding going on and we were suddenly a part of it (laughs) um they wanted us there and granted we're in like raggy dirty clothes like just not looking nice at all and everyone else is just done up and extravagant and so we're kind of coming in and people are like here eat 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 and we're like okay so we start like we're really hungry and there's all these different like little um like you know kind of appetizer size 
stations everywhere so we start to go and just like kind of fill up our plates with all these appetizers and we eat we're like oh wow that was amazing like we're so filled up and are like oh that's just the first course and then like the main course came out and we're like oh my god we cannot eat that and they're all like eat 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 like no there's no way and then there was dancing and drinking and they had us all coming in and we're like whoa and then somebody i think was like oh go see the bride and groom and so we were then funneled out to this other area where now we finally for the first time have seen the bride and groom while everyone else is partying and enjoying they have been taking photos for hours and we go up and take a photo (laughs) with them and they have no idea who these white people are in these baggy dirty clothes but they take a photo with us just thinking back to this now like how ridiculous this is and honestly they look so tired and not that happy because it indian traditional indian weddings tend to go over three days now i'm not indian i am no expert on this just what i know is that uh they are three days long and there's a lot of tradition as a part of it And so by this point, I don't know what day we're at, maybe day number two, but I mean, they've been doing a lot. So I think they were pretty tired. And then there was this kind of a traditional part where a lot of people were circled around them and there was a part of her dress tied to his gown and they were walking in circles. And I think there was a candle again, 10 years ago, it's a little bit fuzzy in my brain and we were we stayed there till 3 a.m. and it was still going and we were like, we have to go and go to bed. (laughs) It was absolutely uh, just a wild experience. It It was such a beautiful thing to stumble across and be invited into. Uh, And then that would be the moment that I went off to Greece and ended my time in Nepal. So I think with that, I'm going to end here for right now because I know that India, there's a lot there in India. So I think it will be best to just have uh, it be its own episode. And then um, from there, it will be being in um, Malaysia and Laos and Vietnam and then we'll be in Australia, we'll be in New Zealand, we'll be in Europe and then down in South America. So that's how the rest of it will be chunked out, maybe some combined, Uh, but I think we will keep this one as just the beginning of the travels and Nepal and the next episode is going to be all about India, which was um, an extremely extremely potent time so i am excited to dedicate an episode to sharing about that so if i were to summarize what the beginning of my trip you know even going through the desert and into thailand into nepal was i mean it was really that like stepping out on the hero's journey 
it was stepping out into that unknown, buying the one-way ticket. It was taking my grief and not necessarily running from it because I was very present with it throughout all of my travels, especially this first year. And I wanted to go on this journey before my father even passed away. So it was taking that grief and trying to like walk with it and journey with it and kind of leaving behind this other version of myself. Like I knew I was stepping into just something. I I just didn't know where everything was going to go. So it was, it was the stepping out and starting the journey um, and really letting landscapes kind of help with that, which for me, nature does really do that. So the, the desert being one and then moving into the Himalaya and beginning to unravel some of these things within me a lot around that masculine wound and men that I didn't share here on the podcast and through my experiences there that were coming up and beginning to see of the trauma and the dysregulation in my body and what I had been carrying all my life and starting to see my own symptoms in a totally different light than I ever had before, which before that was so much focus on my diet and my supplementation and I just must be not hitting the nail on the head on like the right thing to eliminate or whatever it may be. This was this unraveling of starting to peel back these layers of the patterns I had lived in in the U.S. in this go, go, go life and just really getting outside of my comfort zone and out of the norm, especially living and volunteering in this village. And, you know, shifts also happening within my body with starting to come back into some pretty bad uh, body image and and gut issues, being that I was getting stomach bugs and I was eating differently and and starting to gain weight throughout the travels um, and just not feel my best. So there was this element like coming back from my teenage years and early 20s wanting to uh, be witnessed again, which you'll hear later on once I get to Australia. That was a big part of my journey there. So Nepal was really like peeling back the layers Um, there was a big theme around men and sex that again, haven't been shared. And I think now when I look back at it, I see how much it was setting me up for (laughs) what occurred in India. So, uh, that would be kind of my summary there. Uh, I look forward to sharing with you the next leg of the journey. Well, thank you for listening to me share about some of these stories and experiences from my life. And it's quite a beautiful process for me to to go back through some of these writings and memories and try to share what seems potent and summarize them and make connections. So I appreciate you being interested and just tuning in as I kind of figure out how to do this in this real time of making a podcast episode. Um, And I hope that they bring, you know, 
just enjoyment of listening to adventure and stories, but also that they can bring some depth and learning into your own personal healing journey as well, as that is definitely my intention. So I will be uh, hopefully able to draw these connections and parallels and and learnings and meanings a little bit more deeply um, in through all of this. And um, I'm excited to get into the next one about my time in India.